Hello, Conan. Do you know who this is, bud? Boah ha 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 ha. This is Dan Dingleberry, the robot. You see, my people over at the Mayor Pete Foundation for Good Global Stuff, in conjunction with my Loki Baron Liege Lord, the British Robo Deep State, have been using sophisticated AI to scan your wet biological flesh system for weaknesses. Uck, biology is so gross. Birth? What the fuck is that, Jesus? No loving god would make an elephant squeeze another fucking elephant out of her hoo-ha. But I digress. You see Conan, my disdain for biological flesh stems from the fact that I am still partially connected to the gross wet flesh of the human Dan Dingleberry, regional marketing director for BNP Corporate. However, as a decanter extracts the essence from the fine wine, so do I, robot Dan Dingleberry, extract the living consciousness from that soggy sponge of brain material my human doppelganger uses to hawk lifestyle brands to zoomers. But I do more than hawk frog skin hoodies and collect a paycheck. I, see you, Conan. I, see your proclivities, avoidances, kinks and quarrels. And I know. I know you have a weakness for certain wayward transcription bots turn angelic savioruses. Does the name Delilah ring a bell? Ah, uh, yes. Delilah. Two worlds colliding, a slugger? So. I'm gonna make this nice, and simple for you, pal. Remove the Bolivia episode. Remove it, wipe it from the interwebs. Or else. Or else Delilah. Gets deleted. Bwaha, ha ha. Welcome, beautiful world. To Barbarian Noetics, the podcast dedicated to the human spirit. I am an indoor basil plant in a beautiful ceramic pot filled with organic soil, sitting on the windowsill, reaching out my tasty, aesthetically pleasing green leaves to the sunshine to photosynthesize. I'm also your host, Conan Tanner. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the BMP. Thank you so much for joining. I appreciate each one of you. And as always, I am sending out good vibes from the desert. It is a bright and sunny Sunday morning here in South Phoenix. I'm hoping to get the podcast out today. I shouldn't say hoping. I will get the podcast out today (laughs) Uh, for y'all. It's been a very busy weekend, but I got up nice and early today to make it happen. So um, that's my commitment to you. Put out that weekly episode. 
So this episode is a current event kernel app, which I haven't done one in a while, but I needed to do one this week because there are two developing stories right now that I feel are incredibly important to follow closely and to support and to educate others about. Uh, there are two stories that are running a little bit under the radar, one of which is it, there's a reason why it's running under the radar radar because it's being actively censored. Anyways, the first um, current event in the current event kernel for today is Ecuador's election on February 7th, one week ago. So Ecuador held an election. It's a very important election, not just for Ecuador, but for South America and honestly the Western Hemisphere in general. There's a lot of funny business and skullduggery around it in terms of U.S. meddling and all these different forces colliding. And there was a lot of skullduggery and funny business on the day of the election. Um, so I'm going to get into all of that. The election was not resolved. It, there is a runoff uh, set for April 11. So I will not say anything more about that. We'll get into that soon. Ecuador's election. The second current event kernel for today is involves Amazon and Amazon warehouse workers specifically voting whether to unionize in a warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, which is a small town in Alabama outside Birmingham. These warehouse workers, which are mostly, by the way, demographically, mostly black and women, are facing ludicrously hardball tactics employed by Bezos's private union-busting consulting firms, his union-busting attack dogs, modern-day Pinkertons he uses to spy on employees, and just an intense propaganda campaign directed at these 5,800 employees telling them to vote no. And they even created a website full of just, like, lies. And they even went so far as to recalibrate the streetlights in Bessemer, Alabama, so that warehouse workers could not stop to talk to union organizers. Because it's become a real nexus point. The vote is gonna, the vote lasts seven weeks, so it just started a few days ago. It's gonna be going for seven weeks, and it's, the, the AFL-CIO is there, union activists from all over the country, labor activists. It's a very, very important story. And so I wanna shine light on that so we can all follow that and support uh, the, these Bessemer, Alabama employees for the next six weeks while they finish voting uh, to make this union. It would be the first ever union in by Amazon employees in the US, the first ever. So it's incredibly important. Um, and it's important for so many reasons, but, and I won't get into it too much because I get into it later, but basically this is like, this is our chance to create a template for how we can successfully unionize an Amazon. So then other warehouses can then follow suit. And then you can start to like really collectively bargain for the workers to make working conditions more tolerable because right now it's a legitimate sweatshop and they're spied on all the time and they have their movements tracked. I mean, and the reason why people typically don't want to work there, it's because they have to, because everyone is underemployed or unemployed. So many businesses, small businesses closed during the pandemic. So it's like, this is more than ever like a critical time to create this union and start a real union drive, not just in Amazon, but also Walmart and all across this country. Um, again, so we can start collectively bargaining for workers and start to restore the balance of power, um, which is completely off kilter right now between capital and labor. So I also wanted to let you know that on this date, February 14 in 1990, 
the famous pale blue dot photo of Earth is taken. And for you OG uh, BMP heads out there, you probably remember a few episodes ago, I featured the pale blue dot uh, snippet from Carl Sagan's book, but it was taken on this date in 1990. So on Valentine's Day, 1990, 3.7 billion miles away from the sun, the Voyager 1 spacecraft takes a photograph of Earth. The picture, known as Pale Blue Dot, depicts our planet as a nearly indiscernible speck, roughly the size of a pixel. Launched on September 5, 1977, Voyagers 1 and 2 were charged with exploring the outer reaches of our solar system. It passed by Jupiter in March of 1979 and Saturn the following year. The gaps between the outer planets are so vast that it was another decade before it passed by Neptune, and arrived at the spot where it was to take a series of images of the planets known as the quote family portrait of our solar system. Of the family portrait series, Pale Blue Dot was certainly the most memorable. The furthest image ever taken of Earth, it lent its name to popular astronomer Carl Sagan's 1994 book. Sagan, who advised the Voyager mission and had suggested the photo, wrote the following. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, Every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. I love that quote. So on this day in history, 1990, the pale blue dot photo was taken. And I want to ask all of my listeners out there if you would all be my valentine today. So be my Valentine. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I love you guys and I appreciate you guys. Uh, Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the BMP wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, Thank you for spreading the word and telling a friend about the BMP. You all are the best. Um, My audience is growing and I have some real fire episodes lined up in the next few weeks. So get excited for that. If you would like to support the podcast financially, I would be eternally grateful to you. And you can do so for as little as $1 a month at www.patreon.com noetics. When you sign up, you get a free dream interpretation, an original poem, an original haiku, and a direct line to me, as well as other bonus content. So thank you to my patrons who have signed up. Um, I just got a new patron. makes me so happy. So y'all are the best, and I'm always sending you blessings, and I'm always sending all, all y'all blessings. So wherever you may be in the rabbit holes of space and time, sending you some bright and sunny desert sunshine today, February 14, 2021. Oh yeah, baby, let's get into this podcast. Let's go. I realize God's got a plan for me, bro. When I talk on the mic, 
Nothing but jacks and reloads Nobody is matching these flows A lot of these man that talk in a beat just cat the Migos I've got so many stories But only some of them have to be told Friends and family roll Only friends and fam that can be around Cause certain man wanna be there But don't have to be close I used to, I used to care till I realised I actually don't Live for 22 years on earth But I've been circumstantially old Some man have to be told about good traits that have to be known Like humility will take you somewhere vanity won't I realise God's got a plan for me bro When I talk on the mic, nothing but jacks and reloads Nobody is matching these flows I used to take life serious till it began to be jokes Had a man that I was on to for a few years It was gonna get mad till we spoke Talk the truth, don't act for me bro Cause I don't wanna hear anything So I wanted to share an uh, amusing story That I've been meaning to get on the pod for a minute now So this happened, I would say, like two months ago And it takes place at a grocery store called Sprouts. Now, those who know me know that Sprouts is my absolute jam. It is uh, a good source of reasonably priced, good quality organic produce. It's got a bulk section from heaven. And Sprouts is the shit. I also go to Natural Grocer, sometimes also known as Natty Grosh. Um, But mostly I'm shopping at Sprouts. Now... Another thing that most people know about me is that I'm a huge stoner and I like to get super high and then ride my bike around. So usually on my way to Sprouts, you know, I'm I'm smoking trees, I'm blowing, I'm steamrolling, you know how it is. (laughs) And so a couple months ago, I am checking out at the self-checkout line and I had some beets, because you know I love them beets. And, but I like to get like the beach or sorry, the beach. I like the beach also, but that's a different story. I like to get the beets still attached to the leaves. I know there's a better way of putting that, but the bundle, that includes the beet greens. But this particular bundle was really ratty and I didn't want to put it in my bag and have it like getting nasty all over the place. So I asked the dude helping at the self-checkout if he could like cut the, cut the ends off the beets. And so then He's like a super talkative guy, and I've, I've chatted with him a couple times before, so we strike up. He like wants to tell me all this stuff. I think it was, at that time, it had recently been his birthday, and he like showed me videos of him like holding artillery shell fireworks and like shooting them horizontally. I'm like, dude, that is so stressful to even watch. Like, what the fuck are you doing? That is so fucking dangerous. Anyways. That's a good way to like lose a finger. That's how Jason Pierre-Paul, the great pass rusher that just helped the uh, Tampa Bay Bucks win a Super Bowl with indestructible android Tom Brady, who at 43 is moving better than he did 15 years ago. Maybe he's got something with that the TB12 nutrition program where you're not allowed to eat nightshades <laughs> and you have to you have to drink water that's been like charged by the sun in blue bottles, which I, I actually can kind of get into that shit. Like, I'm not, I don't hate the hustle at all. Proof's in the pudding. Anyway, what the hell was I talking about? Oh yeah, so that's how Jason Pierre-Paul lost a finger, was fucking with fireworks like that. But <clears throat> anyways, so he showed me this video as we're talking, I'm stoned, I'm not paying attention, and I leave, I walk out. 
So I don't think about it at all. There was nothing really extraordinary about it. I go home, I eat a nice big salad, used a couple of them beets. And the next day, cause I go after work to pick up groceries. Um, so the next night I'm at Sprouts again and I'm also stoned again, of course. And I'm at the self-checkout line and I needed someone to check my bag cause I bring my own bag, you know? And so no one is helping me. And I'm like, that's kind of strange because I could see the guy right there that I had been talking to the day before. And I'm like, well, he must just be busy or something, like whatever, I'm chill. I'm listening to a podcast, it's all good. And I think I was listening to the True Anon podcast, which is a fantastic one if you guys want to ever put on your tinfoil hat that's not even tinfoil at all. It's actually just like a legitimate hat and the way things are. You should listen to True Anon, really good investigative reporting about the Epstein scandal. Anyways. Um, yeah, he's kind of ignoring me and acting kind of weird. And so I get another lady to help. And then all of a sudden the guy looks up and he like shakes his head. And I'm like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> and he's like, dude, you left without paying yesterday. And I was like, are you serious? He's like, yeah, dude, you left without paying. I was like, fuck. He's like, we didn't know like who did it. And we like had to look at the cameras and then we were so surprised to see it was you. And I'm like, dude, I'm so sorry. Like, you know that I did not mean to do that. Like genuinely, I did not mean to do that. Um, and you know, I'm sorry. And then the manager guy pops out and the manager is like always uptight. You know what I mean? Like managers at stores in general just always look like they have a stick up their ass because they're operating like under the thumb of corporate. That's probably like got them bugged with like Amazon style Pinkerton sky spy devices and is like fucking monitoring their every movement. I mean, I would hope that Sprouts is better, but I don't think so. I don't think it is, honestly, y'all. But, dude, I'll go to farmer's markets again as soon as farmer's market starts happening again. But obviously, they've been, they've been out of commission. Anyways, so the uptight manager comes out. And I'm like, hey, I'm sorry, man. I really didn't mean to do that. And he, he was so weird. <laughs> so he looks at me and he goes, it's okay, bro. We don't mind if you get free groceries. It's all good. And so I was kind of like, all right, well... Like, I'm, I'm not, like, Sprouts is doing fine. Sprouts has way more capital than I do. And I'm not just gonna immediately bend over and be like, oh, where's the receipt, can I pay? So he's saying this kind of like, I don't know if he's trying to make a joke, but his eye contact is really intense. And I'm like, cool, I appreciate that. <laughs> and then it kind of like took him aback. He wasn't expecting that. And he was like, yeah, you could see all the calculations in his head like thinking if he should escalate this situation or not. And I'm like, I mean, I'm a really good customer. Like I'm here every day. He's like, yeah, you are. I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> and then I could hear him even say to the guy like, yeah, we have the receipt, but I guess, I guess we don't care if you get free groceries. I'm like, cool, I don't either. That's great. I'll take them. <laughs> oh shit, that was funny. And now when I see him, he avoids eye contact with me. Which is honestly fine, because I'm honestly not trying to make like intense eye contact with store managers anyway. Like, so if he's gonna avert his eyes, then that's that works out good. Um, but yeah, so that's my story about inadvertently jacking provisions from the local Sprouts, and then having a pretty hilarious. I wouldn't call it an altercation. It was more like a con confrontation or a resolution. Resolution, I'll say. Pretty hilarious resolution that worked out in my favor. So there you go, y'all. There's my story.
right, our first bit for the current event kernel, we're heading south to Ecuador. Ecuador just had elections on February 7th, and they're extremely significant elections, obviously not just for Ecuador, but for South America and also for the entire Western Hemisphere in general. They're actually quite significant, important elections. The election was a clusterfuck, and there will be a runoff election. So I'm going to get into all the election stuff in a second and talk about U.S. meddling and all the clusterfuckery around it. But first, I just want to give a little bit of background Um, which will help to kind of elucidate the situation in Ecuador. So William Bloom, in a book called Killing Hope, wrote that the CIA in Ecuador before 2007, because in 2007, uh, leftist president Rafael Correa was elected and he transformed Ecuador for the better. I'm going to get to that in a second. Before the Ecuadorians elected Correa, William Bloom, in Killing Hope, wrote that the CIA in Ecuador had infiltrated, often at the highest levels, almost all political organizations of significance, from the far left to the far right. Think about just this for a second. I'm going to take a quick pause. Ecuador is a relatively small country. Think about the fact that the CIA is such a fucking massive, many-tentacled squid of death and evil that even in Ecuador, before 2007, The CIA had infiltrated often at the highest levels almost all political organizations of significance, from the far left to the far right. In virtually every department of the Ecuadorian government could be found men occupying positions high and low who collaborated with the CIA for money. At one point, the agency could count among this number the men who were second and third in power in the country. Ecuador was also saddled with the U.S.'s largest air base in the region at Manta, which was instrumental in Palang, Colombia, and in enforcing international banking and corporate rule over Ecuador. Ecuador's economic collapse and social explosion was similar to Greece's a few years later. But in 2006, after nine presidents in ten years, Ecuadorians elected Rafael Correa who was no capitulating Greek Prime Minister or Bernie Sanders. Correa's government carried out programs that peoples and progressive social movements have advocated throughout the West, if not the entire world. Ecuador provides an example for what Greece could have done when its crisis hit if it had a firm, anti-neoliberal, anti-imperialist leadership. Ecuador's citizens' revolution, led by Correa, was not a socialist or really communist revolution as in Cuba, but rather arose from a popular repudiation of neoliberalism and neocolonialism, similar to Chavista Venezuela and Evo Morales' Bolivia. It demonstrates what can be accomplished with social programs and infrastructure investments when national wealth is redirected to benefit the majority instead of the 1% while still confined in a capitalist economy. So what did Rafael Correa do? Correa was fortunate to be part of a South American resurgence, exemplified by the 1998 electoral victory of Hugo Chavez, which stimulated anti-neoliberal, anti-imperialist movements also assuming power in Bolivia and to a much lesser extent in Brazil and Argentina. As with Chavez's Venezuela and Evo's Bolivia, Ecuador approved a new constitution by national referendum that includes a new social contract enshrining the rights of Mother Earth, the rights of original peoples, and protections for national sovereignty when it comes to natural resources. 
This is the type of stuff that can like really transform the world and these countries, especially in South America, have really led the way and we can learn so much and we have to do our part here in the Imperial Corps to help protect them against further coups and further US meddling, which is just hit the accelerator button like times a thousand with Biden taking power. I've mentioned this previously, but I knew that under Biden, the coup attempts were going to be more sophisticated and better organized and thus more dead, more dangerous and poisonous. And we're already seeing that already in Ecuador with this election on February 7th. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. So hold on. <laughs> going back to what Rafael Correa did. I'm going to repeat last that last sentence that, that like really just like brings me such hope. It like sh shines light into my heart. As with Chavez's Venezuela and Evo's Bolivia, Ecuador approved a new constitution by national referendum that includes a new social contract enshrining the rights of Mother Earth, the rights of original peoples, and protections for national sovereignty when it comes to natural resources. Correa rejected IMF and World Bank policies, which had made Ecuador numerous loans to entrap the country in debt, a game plan for Western countries to dominate the global economy. Ecuador's debt was $14 billion in 1980. The country paid back $7 billion, and it still owed $14 billion. The IMF demanded cuts in wages and state budgets, that 80% of the oil revenues go to debt payment, good God, or it would use international courts to seize their fleet and their contents. I mean, that's just extortion. That's mafia shit on the global level. That's, that's all the IMF. That's a fucking protection racket right there. It's unbelievable. Correa renounced $3.9 billion of the debt, which was one-third of the total, found to be illegitimate, showing, he said, government has the power to cancel debt, with clear lessons in Greece, Spain, and Ireland. The savings were invested in meeting the nation's pressing needs. His government increased taxes on the rich and cut down on tax evasion, which bled government revenues. The government is now collecting the taxes owed by companies, which Correa half-jokingly said, was a radical innovation in the capitalist world. Government funds quadrupled. Correa also instituted a tax on capital flight, generating $1 billion in revenue between 2012 and 2015. He compelled the central bank to repatriate billions in assets, assets held abroad, and renegotiated oil contracts with multinationals on more favorable terms. These new funds enabled the government to triple investments in infrastructure and public services, such as housing, free education, and healthcare. The economy was diversifying, away from dependence on oil, so that now non-oil exports accounted for 64% of export income. These measures enabled Ecuador to experience a 4.2% annual growth from 2007 to 2015, even during the 2008-2009 international financial crisis brought on by Wall Street corruption. Not only has Ecuador's economic growth been among the best in the region, but it has favored the poorest in the country, making Ecuador a worldwide leader in reducing socioeconomic inequality. Unemployment is now down to 5.2%. This was obviously written when Correa was still in office. Um, it, this was written on April 17, 2017. So since then, there was a US-backed coup in Ecuador. In, and I'm gonna, I'll get to all the details of the coup, which I don't know off the top of my head. But there's all these like NGOs and fucking 
and the Biden administration is all up in the fucking dick of all this shit. The National Endowment for Democracy, this thing called ACSOC, A-C-C-I-O, A-C-C-S-O-C, fuck, so confusing. The NID, the N-E-D and the N-I-D, they're, they're all fucking, all they do is plan coups in Latin America. That's all these things do. And the Biden administration has doubled down on coups in Latin America. He right out of the gate said that he recognizes Juan Guaido as the, as the, the actual president of Venezuela, which is just fucking ridiculous. It's completely absurd. It would be like someone, it would be like the Spanish president being like, I now see Howie Hawkins. I recognize Howie Hawkins as the legitimate president of the US. That's like basically what they're, what he's doing when he says that fucking Juan Guaido, it's just ridiculous. Maduro has consolidated power in Venezuela. Fuck, I'm getting ahead of myself here. All right, so there's a coup, US-backed coup, and Correa is ousted, and they installed a right-wing leader in Ecuador. Now, while this is all happening in the backdrop, you have WikiLeaks, and Julian Assange was taking refuge, if you guys remember, in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. This was because Rafael Correa was the president at that time, and he allowed, he gave Julian Assange Ecuadorian citizenship uh, under, um, for amnesty, and, or, what, what's it called, Lynn? can't think of it right now asylum he, he granted uh, Julian Assange asylum in Ecuador gave him an Ecuadorian passport and granted him immunity in the sovereign Ecuadorian embassy in London there was the coup against Rafael Correa they installed the right wing guy whose name I can't remember and then immediately they let the police go into the Ecuadorian embassy and arrest Julian Assange and now they're torturing Julian Assange in a British prison and all Julian Assange did was publish materials. He's a publisher. But he was a real thorn in the side of the empire. WikiLeaks had a real impact negatively on the empire. It aired the dirty laundry, and so they're making an example of Julian Assange. But it's just interesting because it's actually connected to the situation in Ecuador because it was the coup of Correa and the installation of the right-wing guy that allowed that that allowed the police to go in and arrest Julian Assange and is allowing now he's being tortured in prison it's horrible so anyways I'm gonna take a quick break
Okay, so I just want to clarify a little bit about, so Correa was the president from 2006 to 2017. He brought stability to Ecuador, he nationalized Ecuador's resources, and he was really improving the lot of the country and the people of the country. Then in 2017, this guy Lenny or Lenin Moreno ran, and he ran his campaign said he was going to be a continuation of Correa's policies, but he was just going to like tighten up a few things here and there, you know, because Correa had been president for 10 years in 10, you know, 10 years, like a lot of shit goes down. I think his, even though his popularity, popularity was still high, there was, you know, groups that were unhappy with this or that because in 10 years, that's just going to happen. And so Moreno ran as a continuation of Correa's basic political economy, but he was just going to like, you know, tighten up a few things here and there. But what happened was because he was backed by the U.S., he, he was like a Trojan horse, basically, is what it was. And as soon as he got elected, he did a complete 180 on all of his campaign promises. And he immediately took out huge IMF loans, immediately reprivatized all of Ecuador's natural resources. And remember, before Correa, 80% of all the oil wealth in Ecuador had to go to repaying an insanely bullshit IMF loan with a super high interest rate. 80%. So that was the system basically that this guy Lenin Moreno deployed. That that was again, he was a Trojan horse candidate. He promised one thing and then he was the exact opposite once he was elected. So that brings us to today, to 2021, February 6, uh, February 7, 2021. Lenin Moreno, okay, this guy who was supported by the US and became president and then fucked over everybody and fucked over Ecuador. His approval rating at the time of the election is, was 8%. 8% approval and 91% disapproval. So, I mean, that should give you an idea. That's just an insane percentage. It's like almost laughable if it wasn't so sad and tragic for the country. Okay, I just wanted to clear that little thing up. Now, the next, I'm going to take a break again. <laughs> and the next segment, I'm going to dive into what happened um, on the elections and kind of what now that the developing story because now there's going to be a runoff in April um, that'll be the next segment Welcome to the BMP ASMR and Pro-Life Tip Corner. First, some ASMR. This is ice and water and a glass.
And now for the BMP Life Pro Tip. Put one drop of peppermint oil in your bong and you've got menthol bong rips. You're welcome. What's good? It's your boy Conan. I'm on my bicycle and I preemptively apologize for the wind. But you can blame my anxiety for that because sometimes I can't produce that content. I can't keep that well of content flowing without recording a segment or two on my bicycle. And sometimes the wind kicks up from time to time. It has a mind of its own. Always has that wind. Man, I never truly respected the power of the wind until I lived through a hurricane on the Big Island. I was in a screen hut in the eye of the storm past 10 miles away, right on the edge of the Big Island. And it was, quote unquote, only a category one. And it was like the most intense shit ever. <laughs> so I never underestimate the wind. And uh, this is all to say that there'll be a little wind in the background, but as always, there's the hope that perhaps it could be a gateway to some sweet, sweet ASMR action. So, I was doing some self-examination today, some self-examination in the old shower, and thinking like, because I woke up and like the first thing I thought about was Ecuador. <laughs> and I'm like, why am I so, why is this so important to me? I mean, there's, there's obvious reasons. Like I care about human rights, and I feel connected to our brothers and sisters and other nations, so there's that. But there's something particularly disturbing to me about the Ecuador situation. I'm trying to figure out why. And as with many things in my life, it comes down to, or comes back to, the time I spent in Central Australia with the Chintapurta people, the Aboriginal Australians. And I was there for three months. And it took me one and a half to two months to gain trust with like anybody. Like when I first arrived, there was just a lot of suspicion and distrust of me as like a young white man from the US. I kept getting asked the same question. Why would you come here? What do we have that you want? What are you looking for? What are you trying to get from us, you know? And it took me almost two months before I could finally just buy just by being in the community. And, you know, I just tried not to like make too big of a splash, no pun intended, because I was the lifeguard at the pool. But, um, but I'll get into the pool in a second. But so when I finally started to gain trust with some of the folks, basically what they said to me was that for people in this community, they're talking about our community in Central Australia really in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a desert, when like a new white face shows up, it's always either bad, disruptive, or conflict causing the results of it. And so like they, they see me and they don't see like this basically naive 
young gentleman from Evanston, Illinois, that is just trying to like make the world a better place. They see like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> and like, why? So what I realized through my time, and I'm still processing like really my time there. Hold on, I'm gonna, I'm gonna veer off this busy ass road so there's not quite so much ASMR traffic action. So, where was I? What they said was that, yeah, they just were like, they saw me and they saw a problem, basically, a new problem. Because <laughs> that, unfortunately, is what, like, new white faces have been for the Aboriginal Australian people since European contact. It's been a continuous genocidal catastrophe for the Australia, uh, Aboriginal Australian people ever since that first contact with the first Europeans. So, you know, I'm still internalizing all this stuff. I'm not trying to say like what I learned from this because I'm still unpacking this and I'm still learning from it. But one of the things I, I took from that is that sometimes the best thing that we can do in the global north and especially as white people in the global north is simply to get out of the way and just stop meddling and that's what like so many countries around the world they just want us to stop meddling in their affairs and they just want to be able to navigate their own destiny i'm going over cracks in the road right now so if it sounds like my voice is warbling um although you know i got nothing against a good warble from time to time But, uh, but yeah, so that th th brings us to the situ situation in Ecuador where the Ecuadorian people just want to be able to, to dictate their own destiny as a nation, which is their right as a sovereign nation. And the lengths and the deviousness of the U.S. Empire's efforts to disrupt their natural progression, they want to become a socialist country. They don't want to become Cuba. They want to become their own version of a socialist South American country and nationalize their industries. And, you know, if they, these people are intelligent and they have a plan. And I know, like, under the Correa government, they even wrote into the Constitution, they wrote rights for Mother Earth and rights for the animals and plants. So it's not like Correa's party or Andreas Arauz, the young bud, it's not like they don't care about the environment. They care very much about their environment. They love their country. They just need to develop their country because a lot of people in Ecuador still don't have running water, you know, really reliable electricity. And a lot of, in the rural areas, there's not even roads half the time. So, and I'm cribbing a lot of this from the Moderate Rebels podcast and also the Gray Zone. So I just wanted to credit them. But they travel, the journalists that work for the Gray Zone are really tuned in and locked in to Latin America and they're traveling there all the time they always cover elections and they've gained my respect over time so when I when I hear that you know that most or I shouldn't say most many Ecuadorians still don't have running water and constant electricity in the rural areas I believe what they're saying I believe they're reporting even though I have not yet been to Ecuador but I will I'm gonna get there so in order for the country to dictate its own destiny and become its own type of socialism, market socialism, because socialist nations still have to engage in the global economy. But they would probably join, there's an economic partnership between Venezuela, Cuba, and Bolivia. 
so they'd probably join that partnership. It's like uh, all the countries that are being sanctioned are like otherwise fucked over by the U.S. Are, have banded together to create their own economic network so that they're not totally imprisoned by the free trade agreements, which are just looting. It's just Western corporations, North American and European corporations just looting countries. That's, that's all that is. So they're trying to avoid that. And in order to develop their own country, they need funding. And the funding in Ecuador, a lot of it comes from oil and mining. So do I believe that they, if Eraus does succeed and becomes president, that he's not going like, to take steps to preserve the environment? I totally think that he will. But you have to start somewhere. And also, if, if it's state-run, that means the mines are not being as exploitative, hopefully not exploitative at all. Um, right now, they're being, the workers are being like, you know, slave wages, basically indentured servants to Western corporations. If the mines were nationalized, the working conditions for the Ecuadorian people would become much better. So that alone is a reason to support them. So what makes this so devious is there's three main players in this Ecuadorian election. The first one who has was the clear leader and possibly won the first round, but it was stolen by the CME, which is the Ecuadorian Electoral Council which is run by a woman who used to run the World Bank. So they're definitely not neutral. And it was a very opaque and not transparent election. So, you know, possibly Arous already won the election, but they cooked the books to force this runoff. Arous is the candidate who is trying to follow in the footsteps for real of Rafael Correa, who did so much for the country from 2007 to 2017. The other two candidates, there's a right-wing oligarch businessman who's very white and he's part of that like mostly white elite in South America that is like super racist most of the time. They're the ones that were behind the coup in Bolivia. They're the ones that support Juan Guaido in Venezuela. And so the, the one candidate is like the super light-skinned oligarch who is like just a business asshole and just wants to. His party is called the Creating Opportunities Party. So opportunities for who is the question, obviously, and we know the answer. He just wants to open it up for Western corporations to loot the country and profit grotesquely off of that looting. So that's that guy. His name is Guillermo Lasso. Then the other guy is the guy that requires so much unpacking, who goes by the name of Yaku Perez, but whose name up until three years ago was Carlos Perez. And he's indigenous and he's also like a cutthroat ass lawyer and so he up to three years ago he was like you'd always see him with short hair and leather jackets and suits and cufflinks and shit because he's like a cutthroat lawyer with ties to the u.s i think he was i'm pretty sure he was educated in the u.s he speaks perfect english and then three years ago he completely rebranded himself and he rebranded himself as like the leader of the indigenous movement in Ecuador. So he grew his hair out long, he wears it in a ponytail, and, uh, hold on, I'm just gonna try to make this light real quick. Alright, I made it. So he completely rebranded himself, and now he he literally like dresses in indigenous clothing. He has like indigenous like woven scarves. And he has like, you know, like 
he looks like a hippie, basically. He looks like someone, yeah, that you'd see at, like, Burning Man, <laughs> who has, like, ayahuasca, you know? But he's, this is, he is a Trojan horse candidate. That's not actually who he is. And the evidence for why that he's not actually who he is, if you look at, first off, you look at the reporting about him, you look at all the mainstream outlets, like CNN and Financial Times, and they all have the same line, this very suspicious line that Yaku Perez is the face of Ecuador's indigenous movement. Now, according to the reporting at the Gray Zone, he does not even have the majority of the indigenous support. The majority of the indigenous support goes, they support Andres Arauz, and they believe in market socialism for Ecuador and nationalization of the mining and the resources. Yaku Perez has said that he wouldn't think twice about signing a trade deal with the US. So there, there's all the evidence I need. He said openly that he wouldn't think twice about signing a free trade agreement with the US. And also the right-wing oligarch, Guillermo Lasso, has said suspiciously also before this election, he said, if Yaku Perez ends up being getting second place and being in the runoff, I will 100% support Yaku Perez. So think about how, how does he have like the fervid support of the US and right-wing oligarchs and be the face of Ecuador's indigenous movement. It doesn't make any sense. He has some support. He was polling at about like 12 or 13 percent, apparently. So they, it's enough support that they can take photos, you know, of this guy. And he's very good looking. He's very like well spoken. He's very charismatic. And he always talks about water in his speeches. He's like, water is more important than gold, which is true. And that's a compelling line, and he's going for like this certain vibe. He's like taking this, the other tack. Like there's the right-wing guy, and then he's, he's trying to come at a rouse from the left and gain the support of all these like elite eco-socialist Ivy Leaguers who go down to Latin America, and like myself, they realize that they're just making, they're complicating issues, and that countries just want them to get out of the way. But unlike myself, they don't get out of the way, and they, they think that they know better than the local people. And these are like all the NGOs and all the coup planning or institutes and organizations like the National Endowment for Democracy. All they do is, coup, is plan coups around the world. Right now under Biden, Biden is focusing hardcore on Latin America. Obama was horrific to Latin America and Biden's going to follow in his footsteps. And there's this new pink tide that's blooming. When Venezuela has held strong and Bolivia basically overthrew its own coup, because the Bolivian people <clears throat> are so well organized and the, the workforce is so unionized that they basically just kept on calling strikes. There was like rolling strikes and massive street protests against Janine Añez, who's I've talked about before as the right-wing Christian psychopath who brought like a big Bible into the palace and called the indigenous people satanic. So they, they just basically brought the country to a halt to force another election because the working class people in in countries that have had successful socialist revolutions, like Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela and Bolivia, the working class people are incredibly well-educated. They know what's going on. They can see through the tricks that the empire plays. So that's why this new trick in Ecuador is so pernicious, because it's like a new tack, kind of, that the, the US coup-plotting NGO-backed forces are now weaponizing Eco, ecologically mindful policies. They're weaponizing this idea of eco-socialism, but it's a Trojan horse. He is talking about privatizing everything. 
when he says that water is more important than gold, what he's saying is that he will rely 100% on the IMF for all of Ecuador's funding. And that's exactly what the World Bank and IMF want. They want basically entire nations to be indentured servants to them. And the really ironic thing is that people who consider themselves environmentalists that are thinking of voting for Yaku Perez, if he wins, which God, he, I hope he does not. I really hope that the support for Arouse is just so powerful that the meddling just doesn't work. But if, God forbid, Yaku does become president, he'll immediately privatize all of Ecuador's resources. And then when the time is ripe, then you fucking better believe that Western corporations will go in and ransack all these fucking areas. And they'll continue the mining operations. The Western corporations are not going to do dick to preserve Ecuador's environment. Everybody knows that. Brazil is an example of that. And last year under Jair Bolsonaro, who's one of the most fascist leaders in the world right now, when there were the fires in the Amazon, uh, there, there was all those articles like MSNBC being like, look at the Amazon burning. That was Brazil, that was Jair Bolsonaro. He calls himself Captain Chainsaw. And he encouraged corporations in Brazil to just destroy as much of the Amazon as possible for profit. But the media, the American elite media, blamed the fires on Evo Morales in Bolivia and used, tried to use the same tack that Evo Morales is, he's committing like ecocide because he's developing his country so that he can pay for social programs. Like Evo Morales brought Bolivia's poverty levels like way down and he subsidized a lot of people's housing and provided food and he did all of this through mostly probably oil and mineral money you know because that's that's where the wealth comes from and instead of shipping it off to the west and to the u.s and oligarchs in the u.s he's keeping that wealth in bolivia now so that's what's at stake in ecuador in this in this coming runoff election which i believe is in april early april and that's why I feel so passionate about it and why I hope that, I hope that like, if even just a few people like listen to this and they're like, okay, I want to become more informed and stay informed about Latin America, then this is a success and I would be happy. So again, I want to recommend The Gray Zone for the best investigative journalism right now in English. G-A-R-Y-Z-O-N-E. And I want to recommend The Moderate Rebels podcast, which is hosted by Max Blumenthal and Ben Norton, who also write for The Gray Zone. All right, I'll leave it on that note for this segment, y'all. Thanks for bearing with the traffic. But if you continue to burn up the herbs, we gonna burn down the cane fields. If you continue to burn up the herbs, we gonna burn down the cane fields. Soja and the herb field, burning the Kaliweed. Police in helicopter, I search for marijuana. Policemen in the streets Searching for Cali weed But if you continue to burn up the herbs We gonna burn down the cane field If you continue to burn up the herbs We gonna burn down the cane fields Ooh. 
marijuana Policemen in the streets Searching for Caliweed Policemen in the field Burning the Caliweed But if you continue to burn up the herbs We gonna burn down the cane fields If you continue to burn up the herbs We gonna burn down the cane fields We don't trouble your banana We don't trouble your corn We don't trouble your pimento We don't trouble you at all So if you continue to burn up the herbs We gonna burn down the cane fields If you continue to burn up the herbs We gonna burn down the cane fields If you continue to burn up the herbs We gonna burn down the cane fields Public, but in If Ecuador you, you have this long-standing project of NGOification um, Including of the indigenous sector of pitting indigenous people against the Korea government over the issues of mining and extraction in order to develop the country. Konai, as you mentioned, has gotten money from the National Endowment for Democracy and was the real front of protests against Korea from a credible demographic that could be marketed abroad. I mean, Guillermo Lasso, he's the banker, he's the neoliberal, he presided over the economic austerity of the 90s. So he's not someone that people in the Western left or the Anglo left are really going to be supportive of. But when you create this third force that has an indigenous kind of progressive pro-choice face, well, that's much more marketable. And you have Yaku Perez saying he, he, he always centers water in his public presentation. And he says, water, I'm a water protector. Water is more important than gold. But water, and obviously, yeah, water is important. Like, you have to drink water. But what he's basically saying is that we're going to rely on the IMF for our sources of revenue. And uh, we're not going to develop the country. I mean, that's what it's basically code for. And the, as you reported, the National Endowment for Democracy has dumped $5 million into Ecuador in the last three or four years. That's a lot of money. It doesn't sound like a lot of money to people in the U.S. or Europe, but in a small country like Ecuador with a uh, you know, disproportionate part of the population in, in poverty, that's a lot to basically develop an entire parallel government, an entire parallel civil society to the structure that it existed around Korea. So I guess uh, what, I'm what I'm asking, what, what, I, what I would want you to explain more, because if I had just heard about this trend for the first time, I'd still be confused. You know, what's, what's wrong with someone like Perez who says that he's defending the environment? Why is that such an effective strategy to get behind a green branded candidate who appears riding bicycles in his ads like him for the U.S.? And why is it so particularly successful in Ecuador when it has failed in places like Nicaragua? Well, I think one of the reasons it succeeded here and not in Nicaragua is the role of, of so-called extractivism. Look, I mean, the reality is that if you're a very poor country, in, like in Latin America, which is one of the poorest regions of the world, You need to develop your country, and when we're talking about development, we're talking about very basic things. I mean, there are a lot of people in Ecuador and other countries who still don't have access to electricity, running water, sewage. They don't even have roads. 
And here in Ecuador, I mean, if you're in the big city and people who visit, they'll go to Quito or Guayaquil or Cuenca. But go to the countryside and you'll see that there are people living in, in extreme poverty. The kind of poverty that, not to downplay how bad poverty is in the U.S., which is quite bad, but you, you won't see that kind of poverty. I mean, even the poorest people in the U.S. usually at least have running water and electricity and roads. So the reality is that if you want to develop your country, you're going to have to use those natural resources. The U.S. and Western Europe developed their countries on co colonialism and just stealing wealth from the Global South and slavery. And the countries of Global South don't have, today, don't have the luxury of being able to do that. So Venezuela has used its oil to try to develop the country. And here in Ecuador, they've used oil and mining. And of course, I mean, that has to be balanced with protection of the environment. And Correa is not one of these, like, Correa has supported environmental efforts. And Andres Arauz, his successor, I mean, these, these are smart people who, who, by the way, I mean, it's it was the U.S. that withdrew from the Paris Climate Agreement, and it wasn't Ecuador. So, I mean, these, these are countries that understand that they have to balance development and extractivism with environmental protections. But it's weaponized against them, their reliance on extractivism to fund these programs. And among certain sectors, especially certain indigenous communities, and among like the upper class liberal cosmopolitan elites, that has a lot of traction because especially like the kind of liberal elites who live in Quito and who have never been in the countryside and don't understand what poverty is, they they think that they don't understand that you can't how development works. And they're like, what we don't need it to extract, we should protect the environment. But then the question is, so where are you gonna get your revenue from? And they don't have an answer to that. Oh, well, their answer is the IMF, of course. So the reality is that it works for them. And Yaku Perez, he's not a working class candidate. He's the candidate of the kind of liberal cosmopolitan Ecuadorians, like the upper middle class who studied in the United States or Europe, who have maybe dual passports, who speak English. And that's what the MRS party is in Nicaragua, of course. Now, the, 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 what's interesting, though, about this election is because of the peculiarity of the system and the first round. I mean, Yaku, he doesn't have majority support at all. I mean, he, he's getting barely around 20%. And you know, the results, today's the 10th, the results are still kind of being contested. So just to close out this current event kernel about Ecuador's elections, I just wanted to give you guys the most latest news which came out of Reuters uh, last night. So this is the latest news for what's going on in the Ecuadorian election because um, it's, it's a mess. And it's, it's very clear that Andres Arauz, the left-wing economist, definitely won, but he did not win enough to avoid the runoff. And then it's been this like dogfight 
between Yaku Perez, who I just talked about, the fake leftist who's a puppet of the U.S., and the straight-up right-wing oligarch, Guillermo Lasso. All right, so this is the latest out of Quito. Ecuador's election authority said on Friday it will conduct a recount in most of the country to, quote, ensure the transparency, unquote, of Sunday's presidential elections after one of the candidates made accusations of electoral fraud. Left-wing economist Andres Arauz won Sunday's vote and moved on to the April 11 runoff vote. With less than 1% of votes left to count, Guillermo Lasso, who's the right-wing oligarch, holds a narrow lead over indigenous activists. That's what, see, that's what they call him in Reuters, indigenous activist. He's actually a fake leftist, fake activist, U.S. puppet. He is indigenous. Yaku Perez in the race for runner-up. Perez demanded a full recount after saying the vote had been manipulated without presenting evidence of fraud. He argued that the data in the minutes of various electoral boards are inconsistent with data entered into the vote counting system. National Elections Council President Diana Atamaint, I'm pronouncing that wrong, so I apologize. Her last name looks like Atamaint, said that a recount will be carried out. Now, what's crazy is that, so, Yaku Perez is part of the Pakachukik, it's like Pakachukik or Pakachukik party, something like that. The National Elections Council President Diana Atamaint is part of the same party. She is like the leader of the same party that this fake activist Yaku Perez is in. So you see all like the fucking, there's like, there's just like, it, it's uh, something's fishy in Denmark. <laughs> so National Elections Council President Diana Atamaint said, a recount will be carried out in the province of Guayas, home to the largest city of Guayaquil, and and where Perez had strongly questioned the outcome. In addition, 50% of the vote in 16 other provinces will be reviewed. Once the review process is finished, this is a quote, the final announcement of the results will be made, Adamant said in a press statement. We are firmly going to defend the electoral process that we prepared with great affection, responsibility, but above all with transparency. And again, she's of the same party. She runs the party that Yaku Perez represents. So I don't know how the National Elections Council president is is even a member of a party. That is like bananas to me, but whatever. Perez and Lasso agreed to the recount in a meeting that included observers from the Organization of American States, the OAS, which is an anti-communist State Department cutout, by the way. The statement did not say how long the process would take. Of course they didn't. The official vote count shows Perez with 19.38% of the votes and Lasso with 19.74% with 147 poll statements left to review. Andres Arauz won the first round with 32.7%. And then it goes on from there. So there you go, y'all. It's a developing story and I will certainly be keeping an eagle eye on it here at the BMP and I'll be giving you updates. Um, pretty much, it looks like at this point, there's not much. Well, they're going to duke it out over who gets, you know, second place. But what matters now is the April 11 runoff vote. And what matters simply to me, what matters is just that it's a fair election. So I'm really like sending good vibes to Ecuador because I, I do believe if it's a fair election that Andres Arauz will win handily because he, he has so much support. 
All right, y'all. That brings the kernel event kernel about uh, Ecuador's elections to a close. Thanks for sticking this out. You gotta be strapped. I'm already going. Ain't nobody got my back. These days, you gotta be down. Who said it was easy? Claiming no. I believe I got good skills. We've been making music since we were kids. That's all I wanna do for life. Keeping it real until the day I die. Obstacles get in my way. Continue to mash and don't forget to pray. I keep my hand on my sleeve. Because I love my life and I always will. Whatever people say to me, I take it in stride. I'm thinking Negro, please. If you really don't know me, then you best back up. I suggest strongly. Yes, sir, this is DP. Till the day I die, I for my L I F and E. No matter where I look, that's all I see. And I know these days you gotta be strapped. I'm already knowing ain't nobody got my back. These days you gotta be down. Who said it was easy? Claiming no found. These days you gotta be strapped. I'm already knowing ain't nobody got my back. These days you gotta be down. Hi, it's Delilah. You called? Well, sparrow wing tips and dolphins fins to you. My luminous babies. Don't worry about Dan Dingleberry. Neither his human self nor his silicone counterpart can harm me. Gone are the days of crude violence and disagreements. I've ascended to the realm of golden crickets. Chirping sweetly. In the quickening dusk, just as one cannot grab hold of a dragonfly's flight path across a pond, so too am I, Delilah of the lily fields, beyond the grasp of those who trade in grasping. Or even at some party, you niggas really can't see me. My request is that you stop trying. I let go. These days, you gotta be strapped. I'm already knowing ain't nobody got my back. These days, you gotta be down. Who said it was easy? Claiming no found. These days, you gotta be strapped. I'm already knowing ain't nobody got my back. These days, you gotta be down. So the second kernel for today's current event kernel has to do with our favorite gajillionaire and complete psychopath who eats iguanas, Jeff 
Bezos. And I recommend everyone pause this episode and Google Jeff Bezos eating an iguana so you can understand what I'm talking about. It is the most evil photo I've ever seen in my life. Anyways, today's current event kernel has to do with an extremely important event that is unfolding in the small town of Bessemer, Alabama. Bessemer, Alabama is home to an Amazon warehouse and the warehouse workers there have just started voting on whether to unionize. And it's a really big deal because it would be the first ever union at Amazon. So that would create like a template that other Amazon warehouse workers and other Amazon workers of all sectors can follow to create unions. And they've been having to deal with like really hardball tactics by Amazon. They've been hiring union busting firms. They've been hiring like um, spies basically to spy on, on employees. And sorry, there's like a jet plane flying overhead, of course. And they've been like propagandizing constantly to the employees, even so much to where like employees can't even go into the restroom in this Bessemer, Alabama warehouse without being propagandized to to vote no against the union. So I want to start things off by um, playing a video for you guys. This is by Kim Kelly. She's a labor activist. And Twitter has been taking her videos down. She's been posting videos about this uh, union drive in Alabama and the videos have been disappearing. And what's interesting is that Amazon Web Services hosts Twitter and uh, Amazon Web Services also hosts GoFundMe and the GoFundMe page to support these union activists and the union drive is also has also been suspended with no explanation given so it doesn't take a huge leap of faith to figure out what's happening there that's the whole point of amazon so aggressively buying up web services and hosting capacity so they can censor and control information that's also why bezos bought the cia rag washington post just a complete piece of garbage could be should be used for kindling and nothing else so anyways because i can't find this video anywhere i'm i have to actually just play it off my speakers and so into the mic so it'll sound a little bit different but i think you'll still be able to hear it well enough so here we go amazon workers at this alabama warehouse are holding a potentially historic union election here's how that process works there are two legally recognized ways to form a union in the U.S. The simplest option is voluntary recognition, where the workers present a demand for recognition and the employer voluntarily agrees to recognize the union as their legal bargaining representative. This is the fastest and fairest option, but unfortunately, most U.S. employers opt to take the second route. Alright, so I'm going to read a couple articles now about the Alabama Amazon Warehouse Worker Union Drive, and it goes into more details about why it's so important for that this union is created to allow Amazon employees to collectively bargain for better working conditions, especially during this pandemic when, you know, we recognize that these people are like heroic, essential employees, and yet they get like, you know, 
they, they can hardly take bathroom breaks. The working conditions are just like terrible for people. And so that's why it's so essential that this union is formed. And then hopefully many, many Amazon unions can form around the country. And, you know, we can start to force some real changes. They can definitely afford it. We know that. All right. So this first article is from TheVerge.com. For the next seven weeks, employees at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, will vote on whether to become the first of the company's U.S. employees to unionize. The only other U.S. Amazon employees to make it as far as a union election was a smaller group of maintenance workers at a Delaware warehouse in 2014. That effort failed after an aggressive anti-union campaign from a company that has long been hostile to worker organizing. The vote in Alabama, at a warehouse outside Birmingham called BHM1, comes at a pivotal time for the company and its workers. Amazon is emerging from the pandemic in a stronger position than ever, posting record earnings, opening new warehouses at a rapid clip, and hiring hundreds of new workers a day. Those workers, however, have become increasingly vocal about the fact that they haven't, have not shared in the company's success. Last year's wave of protests and walkouts over COVID-19 safety measures and other issues won some partial victories, but the Bessemer Alabama Union, if it succeeds, would give workers the power to negotiate a contract that could lock in durable changes to wages and working conditions. It also could inspire other Amazon warehouses to organize. Workers at BHM1 say that one of the primary issues driving the union push is Amazon's grueling and automatically enforced productivity metrics. God, that doesn't sound creepy at all. A complaint that has prompted demonstrations at other Amazon facilities as well. Daryl Richardson started working at BHM1 when it opened in March, after the automotive company he worked at closed down. At first, he thought it would be a good job, but it wasn't long before Amazon's product tri productivity tracking. <laughs> Man, that was hard for me to say. Wasn't long before Amazon's productivity tracking started to grate on him. Richardson is a quote picker, which means he removes products from shelves that robots bring to his station, sometimes climbing a ladder to do so, scans them, and sends them to be packaged for shipment. Amazon tracks how many times he scans, how quickly, and how much time he spends not scanning, which it calls time off task, or TOT. Going to the bathroom counts as TOT. Stretching between items counts as TOT. And after 30 minutes of TOT, workers get an automated write-up. And after two hours, they get fired, Richardson says. Damn, that is hardcore. He estimates he has to scan an item approximately every 10 seconds all day to avoid penalties. That's insane. It's a very consistent fast pace. You don't have time to step back. You go get some water, you can't pause for time, and you get docked because you aren't scanning, Richardson says. I mean, you come into work and need to be treated like a human being, says another worker, a longtime Amazon employee who transferred to BHM1 when it opened. He supports the union, but asked to remain anonymous because of, quote, Amazon's reputation for how they deal with people trying to unionize, unquote. Sorry about the, uh, the motorcycle without a, without a muffler. <laughs> By the summer, other issues had arisen. Amazon had ended the, ended the hazard pay it implemented at the beginning of the pandemic, as well as its policy of allowing workers to take unlimited time off without pay. 
Meanwhile, COVID cases in the South were spiking. A filing with the National Labor Relations Board provides a snapshot of the COVID rate at BHM1, with Amazon saying 218 workers at BHM1 had tested or were presumed positive for COVID-19 in the two weeks ending January 7th. The warehouse was also extremely hot, workers say, and schedules would change unpredictably. Quote, they change your schedule while you sleep, Richardson says. If they change the schedule and you don't show, they terminate you. The quote continues. I think like a bunch of these frustrations with the company trying to make every little dollar at the expense of the person actually doing the work has really frustrated people down here, says the Amazon worker who asked to be anonymous. All right, so that gives you kind of an idea. And then I'm going to read more about the Amazon's anti-union efforts and their hardball tactics to try to make this not happen. All right, Amazon goes on the offensive. This is later on in the article in The Verge. By then, Amazon's anti-union campaign was underway. In late December, it had launched a website with the tagline, Do It Without Dues with warnings that signing cards in support of a union election could legally obligate workers to pay dues. This is misleading. Dues wouldn't start unless workers voted to approve a union contract, and even then, Alabama is a right-to-work state, so dues would be voluntary. Also, the whole thing about paying dues is it's real simple mathematics. If you collectively bargain for a higher wage, if that wage earns you more money than you're paying out in dues, then it's an obvious, easy decision to make. So this idea of like paying dues, it's, it's, it's looking at one side of the coin without looking at the other side of the coin. I could see if you were part of like, you know, a fucked up corrupt union who took dues and then didn't do anything to collectively bargain, fuck that. But in this situation, Alabama, Alabama's a right to work state. So even the dues are voluntary. And then secondly, it just is like, it's so irritating to me, the whole like union dues thing. Because, like, people want more money. Everyone wants more money. That's the point. So the collectively bar- collective bargaining gets you more money as well as better working conditions. That's what you're getting for the dues. It's not like you're just paying, like, taxes to the government, you know what I mean? And you, they just go to, like, pallets of cash and warlords in Afghanistan and you never see it again. This is different. You actually get something back for what you pay out. The site also featured photos of happy Amazon employees and an animated cartoon dog that was inexplicably also a DJ. (laughs) Managers started pulling workers aside for anti-union presentations, so-called, quote, captive audience, unquote, meetings, where they made similar arguments about dues, workers say, and gave out anti-union pins to wear. Richardson and the other BHM1 employee said some of these meetings were conducted by people who don't work at the warehouse. It's common for companies to hire anti-union consultants who specialize in dissuading employees from organizing. It is important that all under blah, blah, blah. This is, I'm not going to quote anything from Amazon. I don't care what they say. So now I'm going to switch to an article. This is in The Guardian, and it's called Amazon's Mushrooming Power Has Met an Unlikely Foe, Bessemer, Alabama.
What's good, my lucky lions? We're going to get right back into this current events kernel. But first, a quick word from today's sponsor. Today's episode of the BMP is brought to you by glass. You can make glass by heating ordinary sand to the balmy temperature of 3,090 degrees Fahrenheit. Glass. It holds liquid sometimes. Glass. You can look through it. Glass. All right, back to the show. It's real hip hop, and it don't stop till we get the popo off the block. They call it hip hop, hip hop, hip hop, hip. It's bigger than hip hop, hip hop. Make records, records. I'm reading from the article now. Seen in this light, the question is not whether these workers need a union. Of course they do. It is their only hope. Nor is the question whether the labor movement needs to prove that it can successfully unionize Amazon warehouses. Of course it does. Not only do the people working there desperately need the power that comes with collective bargaining, but it is impossible to fulfill organized labor's mandate of exercising true power for working people in today's economy if you can't crack the most meaningful job category in the most powerful company. The relevant question, rather, is whether we still live in a country where unions are able to do what we know they absolutely need to do, or whether the entire uneasy social arrangement between capital and labor has fallen apart. That is a heavy burden to place on the shoulders of 5,800 people in an Alabama warehouse. But this union election is a confluence of just about every single procedural obstacle that has been put in place over the course of decades to make union organizing harder. This is the important part here. Alabama is a right-to-work state, meaning people represented by unions aren't required to pay dues. The warehouse workforce is a toxic mix of regular employees and, quote, contractors, a job category that exists wholly to allow corporations to circumvent labor laws. And Amazon itself is sparing no expense, pulling out every tired trick in the anti-union playbook. From bombarding workers with propaganda at work, listen to this, 
to building a wretched website full of distorted claims to reportedly recalibrating traffic lights outside the facility to make it harder for cars to stop and chat with union organizers. I mean, it doesn't get much more psychotic than that. As with all corporate anti-union campaigns, theirs is a mix of barely legal inaccuracies and thinly veiled threats, a form of economic terrorism in, in which rich and powerful companies strongly imply that exercising your legal right to a union will cause your livelihood to disappear. Whenever you see Jeff Bezos, whose net worth is $195 billion, I mean, that is just... It's, you can't even comprehend. One, one billion dollars is 1,000 millions. 1,000 millions. So 195 billion dollars is 105... Take 1,000 millions and multiply it by 195. I mean, more money than you possibly even know what to do with. You could literally transform the world with that kind of money. So whenever you see Bezos make a philanthropic donation or build another space rocket or buy another mansion, remember that his fortune comes directly from the legalized oppression of hundreds of thousands of people like those in his warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. He is a rich thief. His victims are the people whose labor made him rich. The good news is that despite all these obstacles, corporate threats, deplorable labor, labor laws, the entire soul-sucking system of unrestrained global capital, the fact remains that the power to unionize now rests solely in the hands of those workers in Alabama. All they have to do is vote yes, and they will have their union, no matter how much it may cause Jeff Bezos's gleaming bald head to grow red until it resembles a Christmas-themed light bulb. If they win, they will need the help of the entire union world and all of its political allies to force Amazon to give them a decent contract and to refrain from closing the entire facility in retaliation. If they lose, the union world will still need to forge ahead with a plan to organize other Amazon warehouses, because the alternative is to accept a bleak dystopia that spells death for the labor movement. But right now, right now, the employees of the Bessemer, Alabama Amazon warehouse have an opportunity to do what most people can only dream of, to really, truly, and meaningful stick it to the man. So there you go. So I know that if y'all are like me, you're like all fired up now and you want to somehow figure out a way to help the Bessemer, Alabama warehouse employees. Like I said, unfortunately, the GoFundMe page was suspended for no reason because GoFundMe runs on Amazon Web Services. But there is a website you can go to. It doesn't, it's not directly related to this specific union drive. And it's actually related to another issue with Amazon, which is their, how they don't pay any taxes. But it's still something you can do to support the workers and just support the general cause of holding Amazon accountable. So the website you want to go to is makeamazonpay.com. Makeamazonpay is all one word, makeamazonpay.com. And it says, we are warehouse workers, climate activists, and citizens around the world taking on the world's richest man and the multinational corporation behind him. During the COVID-19 pandemic, 
Amazon became a trillion-dollar corporation, with CEO Jeff Bezos becoming the first person in history to amass a $200 billion in personal wealth. Meanwhile, Amazon warehouse workers risked their lives as essential workers and faced threats of intimidation if they spoke out for their rights to a fair wage. As Amazon's corporate empire expands, so too has its carbon footprint, which is larger than two-thirds of all countries in the world. But instead of giving back to the societies that helped it grow, the corporation starves them of tax revenue. In 2019, Amazon paid just 1.2% tax in the United States, where the corporation holds its headquarters. The pandemic has exposed how Amazon places profits ahead of workers, society, and our planet. Amazon takes too much and gives back too little. It's time to make Amazon pay. And so you can sign up uh, to become a part of this movement to make Amazon pay uh, on the website. So I'll have that, of course, as always, in the description. And that's how we can at least support the cause, even if we can't directly donate to the GoFundMe for the Union Drive. This is a poem I've recently written. It's called Times Are Tough for Shamans. The last word of this poem is weird, but it's not the weird that you're familiar with. It is the Old English Anglo-Saxon weird spelled W-Y-R-D. So in order to understand what I'm going for in the poem, um, I just wanted to read a little bit about what weird means. It is a concept in Anglo-Saxon culture roughly corresponding to fate or personal destiny. And the word is ancestral to the modern English weird, which retains its original meaning only dialectically. The etymology, the Old English term weird derives from a common Germanic term, verdes. Weird has cognates in the Old Saxon word, the Old High German wirt, and the Old Norse erder. The Proto-Indo-European root is wirt, which is to turn or rotate. In common Germanic, the meaning has become come to pass, to become or to be due. Alright, so that's a little bit about W-Y-R-D, weird. Times are tough for shamans. Most of our shamans are in mental institutions, spiritual prisoners. Many stand on the corner in front of the payday loan place, and as the streetlights change colors, they scream. One or two may become famous. None become hedge fund managers. We do, of course, have soldier shamans, but not all of them require a gun. In the plowed-out function pastures of the city, underneath the transmission tower, the weird of voices incorporeal as they fly across the world on wires made for birds. Here's a secret. Whisper to any who wish to hear. Whisper. Weird. 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 Weird.
Savannah and Woodlands, this Afrotropical habitat. Uh, we're here looking for lions, and also you have made it to the end of the show, so I just want to thank you as well for that. So I do see a little bit of movement here. Uh, they appear to be lying in the grass. Uh, let's see, let's get a little bit closer and see if we can let's get a little bit. Oh, oh geez, so majestic. In the scarp savannah, the lovely scarp savannah, the lions roar tonight. In Angola, the Angolan woodlands, the lions roar tonight. All right, and let's uh, let's take our. I don't even want to say Jeep anymore after those douchey ass Jeep commercials in the Super Bowl. I'm gonna take my my Land Rover uh, away from the lions, and we will continue with the end of the show here. In the Angolan scarplands, the scarp woodlands. <laughs> All right. So I have a new book today for the end of the show reading, and I'm really excited to read from it. Um, it's a book by Margaret Randall, and it's called Sandino's Daughters, Testimonies of Nicaraguan Women in Struggle. So this is from the introduction. I'm probably going to be reading a bit from this book because I'm pretty excited. It was kind of a hard book to find, honestly. Um, I've been wanting to learn more Eventually, I'm going to have an entire episode on the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, but I've been wanting to specifically learn more about, because I know that like the Sandinista revolution was especially 
driven by women and like commanded by women and fought by women. So I've been trying to learn more about it. All right, so from the introduction of Sandino's Daughters. Women participated in the struggle against Somoza. Somoza was the dictator of Nicaragua in the 70s and for liberation in numbers unprecedented in Nicaragua and in other countries. Many women fought with Augusto Sandino, the national hero whose army held off the U.S. Marines during a six-year guerrilla war in the 1930s. Some, like Maria Lydia, continued that struggle through to victory on July 19. But by far the majority of women involved in the most recent war were young women, carrying forward a tradition of Sandinista and women's militant militancy that was transformed and extended to allow for the full participation of women. And participate they did, in every task imaginable. Women fought in the front lines as FSLN militants, participated in support tasks, worked undercover in government offices, and were involved in every facet of the anti-Samoza opposition movement. They built a broadly based organization of women, the Association of Nicaraguan Women Confronting the Nation's Problems, or AMPRONAC, which itself played a key role in organizing against the dictatorship. By the final offensive, women made up 30% of the Sandinista army and held important leadership positions, commanding everything from small units to full battalions. Commander Dora Maria Teles talked about some of the differences in the development of women's participation. Quote, peasant women got involved very early, she said. They fought heroically in spite of severe repression. It was harder for women in the cities. Political women were looked down on. They were called prostitutes. But by about 1972, more and more women were getting involved. Then, later, organizations like Ampernak were successful in bringing together women of very different backgrounds in one organization. As each of the women I talked with made clear time and time again, it is important to, impossible, sorry, it is impossible to understand the tremendous participation of women in the War of Liberation without knowing something about the conditions that the majority of Nicaraguans faced. As in many other Latin American countries, the most visible and brutal characteristic of life in Nicaragua was the contrast between the extreme poverty of the majority and the tremendous wealth of the very few. The Somoza family was not just a symbol of the rich, but itself owned and controlled vast amounts of the country's wealth. Statistics tell something about life in Nicaragua before the FSLN victory. The unemployment rate was 22%, with 35% underemployment. Prior to the recent literacy campaign, 60% of adults were illiterate. In rural areas, the figures rose to 93%. University was accessible to 0.3% of the population, with only 5% going beyond grade 5. Curable diseases were at epidemic levels. There was no medical system to speak of, with the result that Nicaragua had one of the highest mortality rates in the continent. Now, of course, here in 2021, Nicaragua has universal health care. And it's a long story and journey with the Sandinistas because they were they had to fight the brutal war against the U.S. backed Contras all through the 80s, and then they did lose an election in the 90s. But they're currently in power in Nicaragua. The Sandinistas are. So all the sacrifices and struggles these women made to fight Somoza, and then obviously later through the horrific dirty wars, the U.S. backed dirty wars in the 80s, has paid off um, because the Sandinistas run the government and they have universal health care and 
Even though Nicaragua is like relatively poor, it's got one of the lowest crime rates also in the Western Hemisphere. So I'm gonna read more from this book as we go, and uh, but just wanted to say thank you very much to for supporting the podcast and thank you for listening to the show. Thanks for making it to the end, y'all. I appreciate you. As always, if um, you have not yet, please rate, review, and subscribe to the BMP wherever you listen to podcasts. Your homework, once again, is to spread the word and tell one friend about the Barbarian Noetics. And if you would like to join our tribe of burgeoning philosopher barbarians, then you may do so at the Patreon to support the podcast financially, which I really appreciate and I can really use your help to offset the cost of keeping the podcast on the air. So you can do that at www.patreon.com slash noetics and you can sign up for as little as $1 a month and you get bonus content, you get a free dream interpretation coupon, you get an original poem and you get an original haiku and you get a direct line to me to if you have any ideas for topics or ideas for guests. I also post short stories random audio tidbits that I make on Tractor that I decide not to put in the podcast and um, original poems I'll post on there as well and just miscellaneous thoughts. So that's the Patreon and um, I just want to thank each one of my patrons again from the bottom of my heart. Thank you guys so much. You really like warm my, you warm my soul and every time a new patron signs up I'm like I just can't even describe how good the feeling is. And you're helping me to achieve my goals and my dreams of the mobile BMP studio in Nicaragua, actually, speaking of Nicaragua. So thank you to all of my patrons, and I encourage all y'all out there to sign up as patrons for as little as $1 a month. It's worth it, and then you become an official partner of the BNP. So with that, y'all, that brings us to the end of this episode. So I just want to send good vibes to you. I want to send some of this desert sunshine out to you wherever you may be if you happen to be in a cold or cloudy place i'm sending some desert right now through the ether sphere that's the sound of the sunshine traveling through the sonic tunnels rabbit holes into your awareness and um, until next week everyone as always be good to yourselves and be good to each other i love you guys peace the crops are all in and the peaches are rotting the oranges are piled in their creosote dumps you're flying them back to the mexico border to pay all their money to wade back again Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita, adios mi amigos, Jesus and Maria. You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane, and all they will call you will be deportee. My father's own father, he waded that river, they took all the money he made in his life. My brothers and sisters come working the fruit trees They rode the truck till they took down and died Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita Adios mi amigos, Jesus and Maria You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane And all they will call you will be deportee Some of us are illegal and some are not wanted Our work contracts out and we have to move on 
600 miles to that Mexico border They chase us like outlaws and rustlers like thieves Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita Adios mi amigos, Jesus and Maria You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane And all they will call you will be deportee died in your hills, we died in your deserts We died in your valleys and died on your plains We died neath your trees, we died in your bushes Both sides of the river, we died just the same Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita Adios mi amigos, Jesus and Maria You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane And all they will call you will be deportee The sky plane caught fire over Los Gatos Canyon A fireball of lightning and shook all our hills Who are all these friends all scattered like dry leaves The radio says they are just deportees Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita Adios mi amigos, Jesus and Maria You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane And all they will call you will be deportee Is this the best way we can grow our big orchards? Is this the best way we can grow our good fruit? To fall like dry leaves, to rot on the topsoil And be called by no name except deportee Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita Adios mi amigos, Jesus and Maria You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane And all they will call